You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Stephen Beyer has served on the Supreme Court of the United States since 1994. In his new book, The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics, Justice Breyer reflects on his tenure and the historical evolution of the Supreme Court's authority. In this episode, Beyer sits down with Washington Post Live to discuss his call for reviving civics education in schools and his belief that encouraging citizens to participate in public life will bolster confidence in government. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today, it's a rare uh, privilege for us to have as our guest, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Justice Breyer has written a new book titled The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics. Justice Breyer, thank you for being our guest this morning. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, Mr. Justice, you've written a short book, hold it up, uh, with 100 uh, small pages, but it's causing a lot of discussion. Justices are often reticent about publishing books. Let me begin our conversation by asking you why you decided to publish these essays now. I thought that I've been on the court, or that when I wrote it, I'd been on the court for 27 years, and the court was uh, very much an issue in political life, and I I wanted to give my impression. They're not the only impressions a person could have, you could be an observer and have different impressions, but they are my impressions. And that's what I wanted to get across to people because I thought they might be helpful. The book read to me uh, like a statement by someone who loves the court. As you said, you, you served on it for so many years, but fears that it is losing or could lose its legitimacy with the public. And I, I want to ask, do you feel that that's happening or do you see that as a risk? The future, we don't know. A risk? Yeah. It's a risk. I've seen the long, long time by reading for hundreds of years. I haven't been there for all those years. But I've seen how long it's taken to earn enough trust of the American people so that they will tend almost automatically to follow what the court says. Now, that's a tremendous asset for the United States of America for the reason that that, in essence, is the rule of law. We've benefited from us, from that, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, the founders pointed out that our democratic government is an experiment. We don't know if it will continue to work. We never know. And the best we can do is to keep trying. And I thought that might be useful, my own experience, to others who basically agree, of course, we have to keep trying. The book, uh, Mr. Justice, also read to me, especially in its uh, closing pages, almost like a, a memo to your fellow justices with a, a series of uh, admonitions, pieces of advice at the end about how cases should be resolved. Among the things you cite, you use the phrase, just do the job, the need for clarity, deliberation, compromise, a broader perspective. So I want to ask, um, if I got you right there, 
Um, and do you think the justices are, are following that code as you observe them as colleagues? I haven't said they weren't. I think that it takes, Sandra O'Connor used to say two or three years, David Souter, two years, Justice Douglas, five years, uh, to what? To adjust to the mores of the court, to understand what it is when you are part of this institution. And so I wanted my fellow justices, as well as those who might be interested in this book, and it's aimed particularly at high school students, at college students, at law school students, and indeed everyone, particularly those not lawyers, to give an impression. And of course, I said one of the, there isn't much we can do on the court, but we can take in the fact that we have a job and to do it. You know, that's what my father told me years and years ago. He said you have, uh, he, his advice uh, before he died was first stay on the payroll. <laughs> that was helpful. <laughs> and second, do your job. I mean, it's easy to talk about all kinds of things that you have no control of, but it's not so easy to just do your job as well as you can. And I wanted in a few pages to explain to people how I thought we could do that job well. What is deliberation? We deliberate, and deliberation is essence essentially. And I learned this from Senator Kennedy years ago. Listen, listen to people who have different points of view. Do not say, aha, I have a better argument than you. Leads them to say, no, I have a better argument than you. But if you listen, pretty soon they'll say something you actually do agree with. Then let's work with that. Let's see where we can get with that. And sometimes, not always, you get somewhere. And Kennedy also said, Senator Kennedy, that it's better to get 30% of what you want than be the hero of a group of people for whom you have descended wisely and intelligently, but you've gotten exactly zero. Well, don't worry so, about credit. Don't worry you, about you, credit. Plenty of credit to go around to success and who wants credit if it's a failure? You, you make the argument uh, for uh, compromise and describe this process of deliberation that you and your colleagues go through. But there, there's an interesting uh, moment in the book where you note that you've written opinions on uh, highly controversial abortion cases where you believe that neither compromise nor minimalism, uh, which you use to mean seeking the least broad impact in some cases was possible. Uh, I ask this because abortion is again on the court's docket, and I want to ask, obviously, without seeking your views on, on the case, what readers should take from your book uh, as this debate approaches? And obviously, the level of anxiety about this issue is quite high in the country. What, what should people take from your, your book uh, as it discusses these highly controversial cases where, as you say, compromise is not possible? No. Well, that's always been true in the court. And uh, there is no treatise, I'm afraid to say, that tells an individual judge how far to go in compromising 
how far to go when you deliberate and accept a view that isn't quite yours, and when you have to draw a line. Now, that is very much a matter of conscience. I mean, I did write an opinion saying we should reconsider the death penalty. I have written opinions in dissent about the need to continue affirmative action. In each of those cases, I didn't see where we could go in compromise. And I thought it was more important to state the case clearly that I believe the law required. When, I wish I had this magic touchstone that would tell me. Holmes described it, great judge, Oliver Wendell Holmes. He described it as, well, it's a can't help when you can't help, but write that dissent as strongly as you can, then you write it. So there are fewer dissents than you might think. I mean, probably between 30 and 50% of all our cases each year are either unanimous or eight to one, seven to two, something like that. The five to fours are only about, oh, probably, I don't know, 15% some years, 20% other years maybe a few more, maybe a few less, and not always the same five and the same four by any means. Indeed, I looked it up once. It seemed to me there were more, but the papers will say, in an unusual combination. Well, that year there were more unusual combinations than there were usual combinations. After all, we just wrote an opinion in which we upheld the right of gay people to work at a workplace without being discriminated against, fired or injured by their employer simply because they were gay. And that opinion, people joined it with very different political, with different judicial philosophies. Uh, there were some who joined it who pay a lot of attention to tech, and there were others who joined it who pay quite a lot of attention to consequences and purposes. So you would have had there a mix. Uh, of what is press and others, the normal roundup. I mean, sometimes it is, but quite often it isn't. You, you do know in, in your book the uh, uh, unpredictable uh, uh, alignments and, uh, and uh, uh, decisions. Uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Before we leave this issue uh, that so concerns uh, uh, the public of uh, abortion. Uh, on the Texas abortion case uh, last week, you, you told NPR that you thought the decision to let that Texas law take effect was very, very wrong. It was a statement uh, pretty passionate, uh, obviously on an issue that you care deeply about. Um, is there anything that, uh, as the country thinks about this law, um, that you would want to say, uh, based on your experience, that amplifies that statement that you made to NPR, that it was very, very wrong to let that, let that take effect? I did think it was very wrong. And I, I wrote a dissent. And the dissent gave my reason. And uh, the timing wasn't very good for my book, because... It's pretty hard to believe, I mean, when a case like those come along that we're less divided than you might think. But here we are. Sometimes people, as I did in that case, 
do feel pretty strong, and then you're not going to get compromised. But what is important, and the single most important point that I hope people will take from that, though to repeat, it is only my point of view after 27 years. Single most important point is judges are not junior league politicians. They're judges. And maybe the political process worked to get them appointed. But that process wanted a person appointed whom the people supporting that person would think that individual will believe that the law, the law, the jurisprudence, and it's complex, the law, it isn't computer programming. That person will believe that the law really requires these results. And we, the political people, believe the way they think about the law is more often going to favor us. Oh, they're wrong about that sometimes. Teddy Roosevelt uh, appointed Oliver Wendell Holmes, and within a few months he had decided what Roosevelt thought was the wrong way in an antitrust case. And Roosevelt said, I could carve more backbone out of a judge out of a banana. All right. See, he was annoyed. Uh, the same, the same uh, president appointed uh, uh, quite a few of the judges who, over the period I've been there, have been considered quote liberal quote judges, as appointed people who have been considered quote conservative quote judges, and we never trade votes. Absolutely not. You vote this way in this case, you vote that way in the other case. That doesn't happen. But it happens in the political process. So I want to see if a reader can take in. No, when the judge puts on that robe, he's not a junior league politician. But having said that, there are connections with politics. And so it's a pretty hard message to get across. It's a uh, no, they're not politicians in robe. Ah, oh, but wait, it's not computer science. And over long periods of time, the jurisprudence and, uh, has changed in the court and often to align more closely uh, with uh, the political views of most Americans. And uh, think about the New Deal court of Franklin Roosevelt and think how the Lochner court of Chief Justice Taft, formerly president, president, evolved during the 1930s. And think of how that court evolved and changed when Earl Warren, gravely and correctly, decided to enforce the Constitution and prohibit slavery, as that's what the Constitution said. But it's changed over time, there's no question, very slowly as uh, new people are appointed, as people with different political philosophies are appointed. The, the newest uh, justice, your newest colleague, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, seemed uh, to identify with your view, was articulated in this book, in a speech that she gave yesterday in Louisville. I don't know if you've seen uh, news reports of it, but she, quote from her speech, she said, my goal today is to convince you that this court is not comprised of a bunch of partisan hacks. And <laughs> she went on to say that the court is defined by judicial philosophies 
rather than personal political views, which is essentially your point. She was a very controversial figure in, in her confirmation hearings because people feared precisely the opposite. Her record of opinions, uh, uh, beliefs was so well established over so many years in law review articles and other things that it, it was clear what her views uh, were. Let me just ask you what you what you think of what your fellow justice uh, Barrett had to say, and what do you think the newer justices um, who've been appointed by Republican presidents, uh, whether whether they worry that they're viewed uh, in ideological terms, as, as she seemed to be troubled by? Yes, I I, I I do agree with what I think the approach is that she's taking there. You know, as I've said, it takes some years and you then gradually pick up the mores of the institution. And the mores of the institution, you're a judge. And you better be there for everybody, not just the Democrats, not just the Republicans. Even if a Democrat or Republican appointed you, you're there as a judge, and that means you better be there for everybody. They won't see it. A lot of people will strongly disagree with many of the opinions or dissents that you write. But still, internally, you must feel that this is not a political institution, that this is an institution that's there for every American. It was created, after all, to prevent the other two branches of the government from growing too far. It does not always fulfill that role perfectly. It doesn't at all, but uh, sometimes it does. When I see a case I really think was wrongly decided, I start to think about how difficult Brown versus Board of Education was to bring that into effect in the United States. How difficult it was before the South began actually to follow integration and get rid of laws that demanded segregation. To think about how that didn't just depend upon judges. It depended upon Martin Luther King. It depended upon the Freedom Riders. It depended upon the average ordinary citizens of the United States beginning to think that what was going on in the South was really wrong. Now, all those things have to come together with a group of judges, at least in that instance. And then perhaps you have what's called the rule of law. Never for certain. Never for certain. But that's what you try. Mr. Justice, let me come to an issue that's been a focus of discussion since your book came out and really before that, uh, which is the question of whether you would retire while the Senate has a Democratic majority to confirm your successor. It's come up in every interview you've given. Uh, in an interview with Adam Liptak of the New York Times last month, you recall something that Justice Scalia your, your late colleague told you, um, quoting your recollection, I don't want somebody appointed who will just reverse everything I've done for the last 25 years. And re reading that, it seemed clear that you shared the, the late Justice Scalia's desire. Um, 
I know you've been asked this often, and I, I just want to ask again how you are thinking about this question now uh, at a time when the court is under particular focus and people are paying deep attention to your thinking about this. What should they take away from, from our conversation and your views? Well, I don't want to go beyond what I previously said because I want this to be really about the book and not about my retirement. And what I previously said is I don't, I'm not going to stay there. I hope until I die. And I have been thinking about it. There are a lot of different factors that uh, come into account. Uh, and I will uh, take, I believe I can take those different considerations into account. And then when I'm ready to announce something, I will. So one thing I thought reading your uh, book, Mr. Justice, was that uh, a concern that you have about the timing of your retirement while there's a Democratic Senate might be seen as precisely the kind of political judgment about the court that your whole book is an argument against. Do I have that right? Yes, it might be. It might be. But so I, I'm the one ultimately responsible to myself. And so when I retire, as when I make decisions, I have to be convinced that in my own mind, I am doing what I think is the right thing to do, both for the court and for myself. I, I guess, like things involving somewhat personal matters, no one will ever know, but I'll know. I'll know myself. And there isn't much uh, more than that that I can say. It used to be called, I don't know, was it Conrad or somebody? He said, you have to be true to yourself. And who will know? Who will know? You'll know about yourself. And the same thing is true of me. Uh, let, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that as, 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 your, as your statement on this. The, uh, the most explicit warning in this book that I want to make sure we touch on uh, in our conversation is, is your argument against adding additional Supreme Court justices or taking other steps to remake the court uh, to seek what um, uh, some people would regard as better balance. Um, I want to ask you just to s summarize your fundamental reservation about uh, expanding the court or these uh, other changes. You write at one point, the rule of law is not a meal that can be ordered a la carte. Jeff, <laughs> that's a pretty good line. Uh, just to summarize that argument for us. It's, it's not complicated, but start with Harry Reid, who after Bush versus Gore, I heard speak at the Supreme Court, and he said one of the most uh, important, one of the most infrequently remarked characteristics of that decision was this, that despite the fact that a lot of people opposed it, and uh, it affected them a lot, and indeed, I thought, and probably he thought, it was wrong. Despite that, people followed it. The rule of law was there, learned over a period of a long time, and you never know if it will continue. It does depend on not just the few cases that are highly controversial. It does depend on uh, 
the work of the court over quite a few cases over a very long time. You see that in the history of the court. Because this isn't the first time there were a lot of conservatives on the court and only a few liberals, quote, 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 or vice versa. And it's risky. It's risky changing the structure. It's risky for if one party can change the structure to add more favorable people, then the other party can do the same. And the risk, of course, is that the public in general will become less convinced that it's being decided as a matter of law, and they will be less likely, if they think we're junior league politicians, to follow what the court said. Hamilton said, no guns, no money. All we have really is the decision and the hope that the public, including members of the public who do not like this decision, will see the virtue of following it. As a, a long, long history of that, Magna Carta, you know, King John had to follow the law and he couldn't just throw people in prison. The development of habeas corpus in England, the gradual, gradual realization that it's better to have those 300 million people. I think you're one of them. I think you're not a lawyer. There are only a million lawyers or so. 300 million are not. And those are the people who have to understand that the rule of law is a safeguard, not the only safeguard, but a safeguard against dictatorship, autocracy, tyranny, and a lot worse thing. Uh, Mr. Justice, um, we've come to the end of our 30 minutes. Uh, I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with us about your book, about the court, uh, to help us think about very complicated issues. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So uh, thank you, uh, as always, for watching uh, Wash Post Live. To check out the interviews that we've got uh, coming up, please head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more about all of our upcoming programming. Thank you for joining us today with this special chance to talk with our most uh, uh, senior, uh, long-serving Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.